and welcome to the House of Fun. Now you've come of age. Welcome to the Liar's Den. This is Liar's Leap, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. And our theme tonight is madness and genius. Or genius and madness. It can be tricky to tell the two apart. For example, 200 years ago, a group of literary-minded Brits decided to holiday in Europe. This turned out to be a very bad idea. At the time, we weren't in the EU, meaning Lord Byron had to bring his own physician. It was also a year without a summer, and so, cooped up inside with no Wi-Fi, they were forced to tell each other scary stories to pass the time. Unpromising though this all sounds, we got Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Dr. Polidori's The Vampire as a result. What would we have got had they gone to Scunthorpe? <laughs> Perhaps we'll never know. I do know that we have six tales for you running the spectrum from divine inspiration to crushing insanity. We'll have three of those tales in the first half. Then an interval where you can discuss superstring theory, or perhaps just silly string, before we return with the infamous Lysley book quiz. And three more fiendishly clever stories. Now would be a most excellent time to turn your phones off or to silence. Our first story of the evening will be Last Night by Peter Higgins, and be read by Jim Cope. Peter has had stories and poems published in various magazines, anthologies, and blogs, including Open Pen, Tales of the Decongested, Litro, Pen Pleasure, and Spilling Cocoa over Martin Amos. Two of his prize-winning short plays were produced at the Leicester Square Theatre as part of the world-famous sitcom trial. Jim is a scriptwriter, documentary maker, and occasional voiceover artist based in Oxford. After far too much acting at university, he studied creative writing at Birkbeck and jointly won the Lies League Most Valuable Player and Writers Award in 2015. Jim! Last night, kind of a name was Meredith anyway. Meredith. You couldn't be a famous painter with a name like that, could you? Meredith Walker. He shook his head a little. He wondered why he was here. Her little front garden was full of what his father would no doubt call crap, but which Meredith called art. <coughs> Michael was still undecided, but he knew why he was here. He had to say goodbye. But, of course, it wasn't goodbye. He'd still be coming home for things like Christmas and holidays and things like that. Right? Right then. So, deep breath. Ring the bell and get on with it. The ritual of saying goodbye. Even though, really, he just wanted to leave now. Get on the train tomorrow morning. Why wasn't it tomorrow now? 
and just leave. And suddenly he'd be living in London and there would be art college and he would start a band. He had it all planned out. Yeah, say goodbye to Yorkshire, hit London, hit art college, start band. Who would he be starting his band with? Who were they? He rang the bell. He heard footsteps. Meredith's voice said, Yes? Feeling very grown up all of a sudden, he said, It's me. She opened the door and now we was in her house and it smelled of tea and candles and paint and clay, plasticine and glue, like the art room in school. It was a tiny house. Upstairs there was the toilet and bathroom and, he assumed, Meredith's bedroom. Downstairs you had the little kitchen and the little hallway and then this big room facing out to the valley through big windows on three sides. All or some of these windows were often obscured by paintings leaning against them and this was the case tonight Michael noticed. Looking between the paintings Michael could see a scrum of dark blue clouds pushing and shoving its way across a darker blue sky. He wanted to remember this, all this exactly, so that years later, not too many years later, he could tell the music journalist all about it. The guy from NME, the guy from Melody Maker, maybe even the guy from Rolling Stone. There was a low smoked glass table in the middle of the room, and a red glass bowl on it, and lighted candles floating in the water in the bowl, and some petals or something. Not much of a furniture. An easel. No chairs. <clears throat> Meredith, the great artist, was barefoot in a sleeveless black dress that went down just above her ankles. She always wore black, black. It was Halloween every day. She said, Make yourself comfortable. Look at some art, if you can stand it. Then she half ran, half tiptoed off to the kitchen. Silence. He looked at some art. He could stand it. There was a large painting leaning on its side. It was maybe six feet by nine, and it was entirely white, apart from these words in big black letters, carefully painted to look tight. Flowers, number six, Meredith Walker, six centimetres by eight centimetres, oil on canvas, 1987, courtesy of the artist. Next to him, on the floor, in a neat dark brown frame, was this tiny painting of some blue and red and yellow flowers. This second picture was about the size, roughly six centimetres by eight, of the little information panel you'd have next to a picture in the gallery. Meredith came back in, holding a tray on which stood two steaming little glasses with metal handles and two oranges, one of them peeled. Meredith had long, crinkly, blonde hair and eyes that looked closed even when they were open. He didn't know how else to describe them. Her eyelids were always lowered. Maybe that sounded better. Even when she was giving you her full attention, her eyes were little thin slits that made Michael think of Japanese people, Kung Fu, even though she didn't look Japanese at all. She put the tray down on the table, picked up both glasses, and handed one to him. She said, and she feeds you tea and oranges that come all the way from Asda. 
Michael always felt daunted and overawed by her. She was older than him by almost five years, and at least as tall as him, which really freaked him out sometimes, as did her habit of seeing things which she, she seemed to understand, but which he definitely did not. She had very thin lips, and now she smiled one of her best thin lips smiled at him, showing none of her teeth. And then she sipped her tea, holding the cup with both hands. She didn't have a proper job as far as he knew. So she just lived in this house, painting her paintings and drinking tea and saying strange things. How had she and Michael ever met in the first place? Ever got to know each other at all? Well, there had been that weird evening in that weird art gallery in Leeds. This tiny weird place full of weird people. Bill had dragged Michael along and introduced him to Meredith. One of their teachers from sixth form had been there too, Mr. Kerrigan, a bit of a hippie and not really a great teacher, but a cool guy. Michael could remember very well the way Mr. Kerrigan watched him from the other side of the room as Bill and Michael talked to Meredith. At one point, Bill fucked off to get some more drinks and Mr. Kerrigan walked over and tried to make a joke about how the boys weren't old enough to be drinking. Mr. Kerrigan and Meredith had then had this weird, whispered conversation while Michael stood close by, pretending he was much further away. He only caught a few words, such as, last time, and you don't know what you want, and oh, for God's sake. They stopped talking when uh, Bill showed up again with two cans and said, oh, hello, sir, fancy a light ale. Now, Meredith said, so, you've seen my latest masterpiece then. I finally realised that all anyone does in an art gallery, instead of looking at the actual paintings, they just look at the little things on the wall next to the paintings. You know, the little card with the information on it that tells you who painted it, what medium it's in, how big it is, and what year they did it. So I thought, make that the art, and then underneath it, really small, have the actual painting. <laughs> Michael had a feeling he'd seen someone else do something similar, or read about it in a newspaper or in a book. He wondered if Meredith had read about it somewhere else too and had stolen the idea. Wow, he said, brilliant. But now we have this feeling that he hadn't said this quite soon enough after Meredith had finished speaking. He felt like she knew what he was thinking. A thick silver bracelet gripped her upper arm between her shoulder and her elbow. He'd never seen anyone wear a bracelet up there before. She was tilting her head sideways at him just a little. Listen to that, she said. What? And he thought she was going to say, Listen to that, the sound of a young man lying. <laughs> But she just said, listen. There he was. A distant but definitely audible and actually quite annoying buzz. A hum. It stopped for a second or two, well, three seconds or even four. And then it started again. She said, he is mowing the lawn in the middle of the night. The sound stopped. She held her finger up again paused, and the noise began again. 
Michael was about to say, what a loser. But Meredith saved him by saying in that affected, arch sort of way of hers, like she thought she was a film star. I think it's terribly, terribly sad. When are you going to be famous, Meredith? He felt certain that she would never be famous for a painting, but that she ought to be famous for something. Not until you are, my dear. I heard you sang a little song at Leslie's birthday party. Spotty teenagers vomiting cider and smoking and lapsing into unconsciousness. God, I wish you could have been there. A flower-shaped candle floating in the bowl went out and the wick drew a thin grey line which hung in the air and folded in on itself and collapsed. Michael looked at one of Meredith's crazy sculptures on the floor. A metal mishmash as big as a beach ball, all twisted wire coat hangers, foil, drawing pins, drill bits, coins, needles, toy cars. He said, it wasn't a little school. She looked at him with that smile that drove him insane. And she said, I'm sure you're right. Then she changed the subject. You're leaving tomorrow? Yep. Flying into the future. I'm going on the train. Still smiling, she said. So, <coughs> on your last night in this crazy old town, you came to see me. I am truly honoured. So, what should we do? Did you have anything planned? Have you ever seen him? Who? Oh, him, the lawnmower man. She shook her head and silently bent down to the metal sculpture. She looked at it for a moment and then, using the thumb and forefinger of her right hand, she plucked something off it, some little metal fragment of something, which she let drop to the floor. There, she said. Now it's perfect. Then, she put both hands in the lower pockets of her dress. She tiptoed quickly around the room and blew out all the candles. She pulled off her dress over her head and stood there in the dark, lit only by the night sky glow from the three big windows. Michael had seen so many naked women in videos and in magazines, that he was surprised that this naked woman was just standing there, not posing in any way, or dancing, or gyrating, or cavorting, or romping, or wearing nipple tassels, or holding a gun. <laughs> she was standing there. He took her in his arms, and she said he was shivering. It was perfect. He would tell the music journalists all about this night, all about how he lost his virginity to this interesting, strange woman who could have been a great artist, but somehow, along the way, something went wrong. And she never quite got to be what Michael had imagined her becoming, what she was supposed to be. And outside, somewhere, not far away, someone was mowing his lawn in the middle of the night. <laughs> that was the most important detail, he felt, and even though the noise had stopped, he would tell the story with the noise still going. Now, it's 25 years later, and he's on his way to yet another doomed audition. 
hurrying through Drizzle down a little shop because he knows near Waterloo Station. He's given up the singing, now he's acting. <laughs> Trying to act. Two streets away. On the street that you would go down if you didn't know about this shortcut, there's a small but apparently important little art gallery. In this gallery's window, there's a large poster advertising an upcoming show by Meredith Walker. He rams his hands further into the pockets of his inadequate coat. Fuck me. It's fucking freezing. Thank you, Jim. And so on to our second story. To be I Married a Lunatic by Thomas Cairns, read by David Mill. Thomas's fiction has appeared in Berkeley Fiction Review, Pank, Sundoglet, Word Riot, A Capella Zoo, Wiggly, Ampersand Review, Underground Voices, and elsewhere. He is a cashier and will soon start interning to become a counsellor. He lives outside Houston. David is an actor and playwright and is a founding member of Liars League. His stories, Worms, Feast, and Red, were performed here and appeared in Rackney Press anthologies London Lies and Weird Lies. In 2015, his play The Flood was produced at Hope Theatre Islington, and short plays Second Skin and Eva Orr were performed at Theatre 503. David! I married a lunatic by Thomas Kearns. The city's emergency response unit had threatened to sue if Billy dials 911 again. No more calls about terrorists, no more calls about secret missions from the CIA. I love him so madly. I let my mother die alone after a long reign. Billy and I lost all but one photograph of her. On the back, she wrote her last words. Please, son, don't make my mistake. Don't ruin your life over a man. <laughs> when Billy kisses me, I forget myself. He wants to visit the drive-in across town, and only a closed vehicle can convince Billy to indulge a crowd. They might scan my brain, he said. Dr. Mertz thinks taking Billy to a horror movie will end badly. I love him so madly. I promise to so shut my eyes if he ever caught me gazing at another man. Billy grins like a boy smashing a bug whenever the masked slasher guts another co-ed. He has so few pleasures outside of watching the old presidential debates on C-SPAN 2. He warns me my eyeglasses will shatter if I switch the channel. You're too necessary for my plot against Hillary Clinton, he says. You need your eyes. Dr. Mertz sends emails, damning our love affair to disaster bigger than a hurricane, more deadly than a pandemic. Billy started ignoring him the moment he suggested my lover enter the hospital. The one with the straitjackets, not the one with the IV drips. I met Billy Gross six months ago. 
he went to an outpatient clinic for myriad emotional malfunctions. I was killing time, so my probation officer would think I was serious about conquering my pesky addictions. We shared a funk bed. He thought we had deluxe accommodations since the room featured its own air conditioner. Every night I listened to him toss about on the top bunk, watching the wooden slats shift and scrape inside the oak frame. After the noise had ceased, I would allow myself to drift. After two weeks together, two weeks camped in front of CNN, two weeks swapping sodas and cigarettes, two weeks of brief kisses stolen in the backyard while our house manager slept. I reached for his mattress while he lay atop it, unaware, and promised myself that I would marry Billy Gross. I knew I loved him. My therapist wanted me to love myself. I, I told my group that Billy and I were for keeps, for real, forever. If you're unsure whether an emotion is genuine, Lend it voice. You'd be amazed how you feel about things. Candice dubbed him the sexy schizo. This poor bastard zipping among the patients, begging for a smoke. A soiled white fisherman's cap perched upon his head of dark curls. Two days of stubble darkened his face. Reminded me of the swarthy sailors of, from a Shakespearean drama. His lips flexed like limp macaroni when he spoke, shyly asking Candice if I was her boyfriend. She and I explained the uh, delicate dynamics between queer men and lonely women. I'm free and clear, I said. He's quite a steal, she added. Billy chuckled and glanced down at his belly as it stretched across the thick horizontal stripes of his shirt. He confided that he wrote for Pixar and Paramount, did we have any story ideas? Candy suggested an inspirational movie about an alcoholic with breast cancer. Billy's hazel eyes crossed while he revealed his plan to buy a mansion outside the clinic with his inheritance. I offered my number and informed him that my group home had an open bed. After he left, Candice asked me to text her later and make sure her chemo went well. You're going to get through this, I said. That Billy is one scrumptious motherfucker, she said, slugged my arm. In the movie, a creepy girl with sunken eyes beheads Ethan Hawke. Now Billy can't face forward in his seat. He twists his head over one shoulder, then over the other. I know, asking him whether the voices have returned, whether the men in yellow raincoats lurk outside, will lead to only confusion and frustration. He bats his fists against his head, hairy knuckles strong and quick, grasping at them. Reminds me how weak I've become. I was always helpless. I love him so madly. I pummel at my own head so he won't think he's sick. Dr. Mertz dials my cell and then tries Billy. I urge him not to answer, warn him the doctor doesn't comprehend our bond. Billy asks the doctor where his father might be hiding. The <coughs> attic, the, the mailbox, the toilet. I'm sobbing. I can't stop. He shushes me, finger grazing his lips. 
I want to kiss him, but first I want to die. After hanging up, Billy asked me who will get my vote tomorrow. The election was four years ago. Do we sleep in separate beds like Ricky and Lucy? Whenever I sleep beneath his, slip beneath his cover, hard and eager, Billy muffles his laughter and says only bad girl, bad boys get their dipsticks dirty. <laughs> After his cocktail of generic medication takes effect, I wait like a junior high girl beside her princess phone, wait for the sweet sting of gratitude when he leaps atop me like a jungle cat. It has to be his overture, not mine. I taught him how to make love. It involved much patience and much pornography. His mother turned stark white inside the kitchen doorway after Billy boasted he knew how to fuck like a man. I love him so madly. I cut eye holes in a designer sheet and dragged through our apartment, pretending to be his father's ghost. It's my fault he's dead. I ruin everyone. Billy will never escape the hollow mirrors beneath his curls. Inside my lover's head, the only place our devotion can survive. Candice's doctors filter through the room, one by one, speak like children at a spelling bee. All of them deliver the sad, sad pieces of a sad, sad puzzle. Please, she says, Bring sexy schizo to see me. I'll give him a dollar when he remembers my name. This time it's doubtful that she'll leave the hospital. The one with the IV drips, not the one with the straitjackets. Every damn bone in my body is diseased, she says, flipping through the channels while her maroon toenail polish dries. I need lots of things, she says. But bourbon tops the list. I slip her a flask. She hands me little pink capsules for the pain. Mine, not hers. You better whip up a four-course meal when I bust loose, she says. We smile like a dance coach smeared our teeth with Vaseline. I leave and imagine her grin fading. Riding the glass elevator down eight stories, Billy zooms in a focus from his position beside a copper-plated fountain, Apollo in mid-flight, unnoticed by Billy. I love him so madly. I resist the urge to stop dead still while crossing the busy street. He bursts with joy to discover that Candice wants to see him. He points to each body part, reciting what I've told him. She has bad cells on her spine, Bad cells in her brain, bad cells on her hip, bad cells in her neck. We're connected by a series of tubes and balls, he says. Candice went undercover for the CIA, double duty undercover. I pin a buck on his shirt collar. Billy doesn't understand that marriage is reserved for heterosexuals, at least in this state, its name boasting more fouls than consonants. We should come together before they scan your brain while I'm not here, he says. He promises, 
not to skip a dose. He promises to ignore any voice compelling him to scream, thrash, or strip in public. He promises nothing absurd. I love him so madly, I, I pretend every couple makes such vows. We fly to Massachusetts. Billy knows the streets down at each gutter since he took a virtual tour before the trip. In our linen suits, beige and charcoal, and our silk ties, we seem like refugees from a legitimate wedding. As we take our places before the justice of the peace, Billy's eyes grow soft and bleary. I kiss him briefly on the cheek. I love him so madly, I stop debating which of us is truly insane. Only death shall part these men, the official says. A tribe of other queer couples applauds. Billy and I link elbows and parade down an aisle bordered by peach crepe paper from folding chairs. Do I love you forever? Billy asks. Dr. Mertz returns our wedding announcement. I pluck it from the mailbox after our return. In sprawling script, he informs Billy that he can no longer treat him. My relief jackknifes in a panic. Who will write his prescriptions? I've never told Billy, but love is a business. Let too many details slip and you're bust. I love him so madly, I'll find a way. I love him so madly, I'll find an answer. I love him so madly, I'll find what he needs. After fretting to Candice over the phone, she soothes me with wise words, no less persuasive when delivered in her weak, tremulous voice. Bring sexy schizo to visit, she says. He makes me laugh. I ask when would be best. Soon, she says. As soon as you can. Careful with those big damn meat hooks, Candy says when Billy embraces her, jerking her from the bed. She's given up on vanity. Free of scars, her wispy blonde hair exposes her scalp while her lips and cheeks are bare. She fixes me with her cerulean eyes. Yes, this is what's left of me. She's asking Billy simple arithmetic. Two plus five equals a banana. Six minus four equals Jody Foster. She's a lesbian, he announces, proud of himself. Candice laughs. We knew that before she knew it herself. We converse in hushed tones buoyed by chuckles. We speak the language of the dying. She refuses to say goodbye. She insists we say, see you soon. Yes, this is what's left of her. Outside by the Apollo fountain, I stop pretending. The tears fall as I hold Billy, his warmth my only miracle. Are you gonna miss her? He whispers into my shoulder. She's still here, I say. The water ripples, spray cascading into a small reflecting pool. I'm still here, Billy says. And, and don't forget the flying man in a dress, he gestures at Apollo. It's a sunny day. I love him so madly. I finally let him love me back.
you later. Our final story of the first half will be 1% Inspiration by Bridget Mine. We read by Grace Cookie Gam and Tim Lockman. A classically educated Bromley girl, Bridget, likes drinking Prosecco, listening to Paul Simon, watching shark documentaries, and banging on and on about her time in Italian combat. She prefers dogs to cats, tea to coffee, Elvis to the Beatles. Her name is often misspelled and or mispronounced. Grace trained at City Lit. Recent credits include Tyrant, season three, and Melissa in the Lighting, which goes into full production in January. Grace is also a singer, a Radio 4 addict, and was BBC radio drama Norman Beaton Fellowship semi-finalist in 2015. Tim worked at the BBC for 10 years as a broadcast journalist. He trained at the Poor School in King's Cross. Recent credits include We Are Here for the National Theatre, The Dauphin in St. Joan, and Edgar in Edward Albee's The Lady from Dubuque. Grace and Tim. One Percent Inspiration by Bridget Marnie Dear Living Life Loving Life magazine, my name is Alan Stone and I'm applying to be a regular columnist. I love your magazine, especially the stories where the groom runs off with the bride's sister. I'm always like, lol, hope to hear from you soon. Yours applyingly, A. Stone. Dear Alan, thank you for your letter. I'm afraid there are currently no vacancies for the post of weekly columnist. We hope you continue to enjoy our magazine and are pleased our stories make you smile. Thank you for your continued readership. Yours sincerely, Deirdre Wilton, Associate Editor. Dear Deirdre, I laughed so hard when I wrote that. You've got the same name as the sexy lady in the sun. Lol. I mean, the lady that gives advice to the bonkers bonkers. Lol. Not the sexy ladies on page three. Anyway, thank you for your reply. Are you sure you can't rearrange the magazine to make a spare page for me? Yours, hopingly, A. Stone. Dear Alan, I will keep your details on file. If a vacancy arises, I will let you know. Thank you for your continued readership. Yours sincerely, Deirdre Wilton, Associate Editor. Dear Deirdre. <laughs> oh, I'll never stop laughing at that. Your name is Deirdre. There was a girl at school called Deirdre. And though we didn't exactly go out as such, she used to make an L on her forehead with her fingers, so I know she liked me. <laughs> I have a funny story for your magazine, and there are more of these if you hire me. Maybe it'll show you what a joker I am. In the 90s, I went to see Lee Evans at the Brixton Academy. Though there weren't many academics there. I said that every time somebody said academy and it just got funnier and funnier. <laughs> and I came across him in the loos afterwards. I said hello and then went to the pub. When who should walk in? But only bloody Lee Evans. And I said, Lee, long time no see. We did laugh. <laughs> Basically, I'm mad, me. <laughs> if you're looking for someone really wacky with a, with a mental sense of humour, then Alan Stone's your man. Yours, jokingly, A. Stone. Dear Alan, many thanks for your Lee Evans anecdote. 
we will include it in our letters page in issue 127. Please note, items featured on the letters page are, page are not paid. Thank you for your continued readership. Yours sincerely, Deirdre Wilton, Associate Editor. Dear Deirdre, as Victor Meldrew, or Mildew as me and Mum call him, lol, would say, I don't believe it! I've told my mum, and we're going to buy every single copy in Wembley and wallpaper our bathroom with it. That was mum's idea, because she's mad, like me. I notice you haven't asked me why I always sign my emails A. Stone instead of Alan Stone. Haven't you ever wondered why? I'll give you a clue. Think German. But don't mention the war! <laughs> Yours teasingly, A. Stone. Dear Alan, I'm very pleased to hear you intend to buy multiple copies of our magazine. Yours surely will be the most hilarious bathroom in Wembley. <laughs> I must confess that, considering your initial is A and your surname is Stone, I hadn't actually wondered why you sign your emails A Stone instead of Alan Stone. But please, do feel free to write again and put me out of my misery. Thank you for your continued readership. Yours sincerely, Deirdre Wilton, Associate Editor. Dear Deirdre, aha, I have foxed you. You need to use your little grey cells. Oops, wrong language! A in German is Ein, and Stone in German is, wait for it, Stein. I sign my name as Einstein. Lol, you didn't know I was a genius, did you? You just thought I was a nutter. And actually, I am a genius. I work at the Genius Bar in the Apple Store in Wealdstone, or Wealdstein, I should say. Something very funny happened in the shop the other day. A knight came in. No, not one in shining armour, like the kind you want to marry, but an actual sir. He was a knee surgeon, and I said, you are the knight that says knee! <laughs> he said, yes, yes, he supposed that he was. <laughs> Mum killed herself laughing when I told her. Yours, Pythonly, Einstein, brackets A stone. <laughs> Dear Alan, thank you for your continued correspondence which Deirdre has brought to my attention. We at Living Life, Loving Life are always pleased to receive feedback. However, I must inform you that ringing our features department and speaking in a German accent, pretending to be Einstein and claiming you have found a new formula for laughter takes feedback to a new extreme. You really scared Vicky, our work experience girl, who had to have the rest of the day off. I appreciate that you weren't to know her creepy ex-boyfriend is German and often rings the office. But honestly, even without that knowledge, it wasn't a great idea. You are clearly passionate about your comedy, but if I might make a suggestion, it would be to concentrate on your job and maybe meet some new people. We have been very patient, but now we are saying that we will stop replying to your emails. Please, do not reply to this email. Thank you for your continued readership. Yours sincerely, Christina Blankson, 
Editor-in-Chief. <clears throat> Dear Alan, thank you for emailing the Metropolitan Police. We take every inquiry seriously, but I'm afraid we simply cannot arrest Christina Blankson on the basis of her being a stroppy cow. <laughs> In fact, we have had correspondence from the Living Life, Loving Life magazine editorial staff who have asked us to ensure that if you ever emailed them again, you would be cautioned. Also, it would help your cause if you did not set out your email as a letter, with our address being the fuzz. 999 Lesby Avenue and didn't start it Dear the Police Yours sincerely PC Jack Warren Dear Alan Thank you for your email Lee is too busy to reply to every email personally but thanks you for your support Lee would like to remind you that his new show For Evan's Sake will be touring the UK starting at the Brixton Academy your sincerely, Karen James, P.A. Lee Evans. P.S. He says he can't remember you. I did ask. <laughs> Dear Alan, we at Penguin Random House are always on the lookout for new talent. We just love receiving unsolicited manuscripts, especially if, like yours, they are hand-delivered by someone dressed as Einstein and written in thread felt tip. I'm sorry to say, however, that I'm mad me, confessions of an actual genius, will remain unpublished by us. Many thanks, Richard Swan, Assistant Marketing Manager. Dear Alan, Thanks for your loyal services at the Genius Bar. I'm glad you enjoy fixing phones so much. I'm sorry to say we cannot change your name badge from Alan to Einstein, despite it practically being your name. Einstein is clearly a surname, and we at Apple Store in Wildstone use first names, in line with our friendly and approachable ethos. Yours sincerely, Rebecca Anderson, Manager, Apple Store, HA3. Dear Dr Thurkettle, thank you for referring Alan Stone, the 38-year-old above-named patient, to me from your GP surgery. He has never been reviewed for his mental health before. I note from your letter that he appears to suffer with delusions of grandeur as well as an ingrowing toenail. <laughs> I will monitor him closely. Yours sincerely... Dr. Matthew Swift, Senior Registrar in Psychiatry. Liz, look, I know you probably don't want to talk to me again after the other night, and I don't blame you, but I heard you were on the lookout for some sad nut job to do the casino graveyard shift, and I've got the perfect specimen you just emailed in. He ticks all your necessary boxes of pathetic gas. You're damn right, Gaz. I don't want to talk to you. I'm happily married and have absolutely no interest in you in that way. In this Einstein chap, however, send me his details, please. Dear Alan, welcome to Channel 5. We will be in touch shortly with your contract for a Mad About Betting Me programme, 2am to 5am weeknights. Stay crazy, Elizabeth Samuels, Head of Programming, Channel 5. Dear Deirdre, as you've no doubt noticed, I'm on the telly now, so I won't need your magazine to get famous. We never finished wallpaper in the bathroom, by the way. If you send me my Lee Evans letter back, 
I might autograph it for you. <laughs> Yours successfully, A Stone. Thank you, Tim and Greg. And that brings us to the interval. If what you've heard has inspired you, your mind is ablaze, desperate for creative expression, I find that alcohol deadens these uncomfortable feelings with remarkable efficiency. The bar is open. <laughs> Michael is currently pursuing a PhD at the University of Cambridge in literature. When inspired by a beautiful sunset, or by a bottle of tequila, Michael sometimes puts his academic work aside and writes the silliest story he can think of. Gabriel hails from Gibraltar and is a published poet in English and Spanish. Also a spoken word performer and singer-songwriter, he can be found hosting Lantern Society Folk Americana Night at the Betsy Trotsky, and is a co-founder of the poetry brothel, London. Gabriel. The persistence of mnemosyne, Michael Skanskart. On her breath, I smell alcohol and lust, which are really the same smell. She was American, and therefore she was the kind of girl who believed that all Europeans are French, and all mustaches are irrefutable proof of a man's sexual prowess. Mimosini <laughs> was young enough to be my daughter, and yet wise beyond her years. Behind every adolescent fantasy, there is an element of truth, no? Mimosini was not her name, of course. Who can be bothered to remember these things? But she bore such a striking resemblance to the Rossetti painting that I immediately recognized her as the goddess of memory. Even though she couldn't remember a thing because the poor girl was totally drunk. But um, of course, the girl was a better specimen than Rossetti's Menosimi, softer and without those twisted, sinuous lips. I am absolutely. She said with great insistence, I am absolutely need another drink. <laughs> well, this was the last thing she needed, but I made a show of obliging. I picked up a bottle of Chateau or something or other and held it up ceremoniously to the light. Is it, she asked, very expensive champagne? I twirled my moustache with a flourish. <laughs> ah, my darling. It is exquisite. I have no idea whether that was true. In fact, I remember it was quite ordinary champagne. She stared reverently at the bottle, goggle-eyed, as if it was her firstborn child. Can I hold it? My darling, I smile. I'll even let you open it. Her fingers fumbled with the bottleneck. She struggled to remove the foil capsule and her frustration built gradually as if she were changing a nappy for the first time. She twisted the wire hood, first one way and then the other. I could see the frustration bubbling up inside her. She began to shake the bottle clumsily, like a mother shaking her firstborn child in a sudden fit of bad parenting. <laughs> but the Mosini was too 
bubble to let the little cork cylinder stand between herself and 700 milliliters of champagne. There was a little twist, and then a pop! She gasped in half surprise and half acceleration, as if this sudden release was the beginning of an orgiastic marathon of the most sinful pleasures. The bottle jettis on the cork sky forward with enough force to crack the crystal chandelier in two places. And I must say, the appearance of the chandelier was much improved. <laughs> Allow me, I said. I lifted the bottle from her hands and tilted it forward, pouring liberally, emptying the remaining contents all over her head and her shoulders. <laughs> A frothing jet of warm liquid pulsed from the bottleneck and soaked her hair. The fabric of her blouse was saturated with champagne. Her clothes became transparent, and suddenly I could see right through her. Beneath the 19 inches of fabric, the circumscribed her waistline, there was hidden 19 years of inadequacy and shame. Champagne welled on the tip of her nose. She opened her mouth and wetted her tongue with a falling droplet. And then, a look of disappointment. I was um, hoping for a little more than that. My darling, I said, our desires would become tiresome if we went around indulging in them. It is, as the poet says, the banquet of abstemiousness defaces that of wine. Well, she said, slowly unfastening the top button of her blouse, now I am all wet. Indeed, I nodded. Let me assist you. With each hand, I gathered up the material of a blouse and pulled forcefully in opposite directions. The screech of rending fabric filled the room. The buttons flew from their buttonholes and skittered in the various directions all across the mahogany floorboards. The mirror cracked from side to side, I thought to myself, and in the shattered fragments of her attire, I saw reflected my own brokenness. <coughs> Instinctively, her hands rolled up to hide her nakedness. Instinctively, she lowered them again until they rested on her side. Goodness, she said, I hope your wife won't mind. Of course she will mind. This whole thing will upset her terribly. <laughs> I don't blame her, she smiled. If you were my husband, I'd be jealous of any girl that tried to steal you away. Oh, no, no. I shook my head. No, no, no. Gala is not the jealous type. She's, what is the word? Merely cantankerous. Everything upsets this woman. Minosemi <laughs> giggled with the worst of her intentions. Her pursed lips plotted an attack against my lips. Before she could get any nearer, I clasped her shoulders and with my hands flung her violently upon the mattress. Squeal of excitement escaped her lips as she fell upon her back. <coughs> you know, she said as our eyes met, it is my first time. Mimosani closed her eyes and opened her legs wide like garden shears. It was obvious she wanted me between them, and my mind flooded with images of castration. I was filled with the terror of a young boy who refuses to jump in the lake for fear of drowning. Come here, she
she moaned. Don't you dare keep me waiting. A thin film of champagne still clung to her skin. It was beautiful. I wanted to immortalize that sticky sweetness. One moment, my darling, I said, busying myself about the room. I am almost ready. Mimosini's modes of anticipation become modes of impatience. She picked out from beneath her gossamer eyelashes and took off confusion spread across her face. Are you, she said, painting me? <laughs> oh, no, 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 I object. This is not a painting. I am idealizing you, my darling, like an Olympian goddess. Mimosini opened those rose blossom lips and said, well, no matter what she said, I must admit I wasn't listening as closely as I could have been. <laughs> the important thing is that her body stretched before me like a garden whose forbidden fruits were still ripening. Her eyelashes fluttered on the edge of closing, like apple blossoms looking at a perpetual sunset. Her hair, still half drunk with champagne, curled into a tangle of creeping tendrils, liable to burst forth at any moment with a cluster of thick grapes. And anyone could see her nipples were two cherry blossoms trembling in the wind, afraid of losing all their delicate petals before they could bear fruit. I loaded up my palette in a frenzy with even more shades of green and violet. As the oil paint began to dry along the bristles, my paintbrush stood erect, firmly stroking the canvas in the rhythm with Nemosini's incessant breathing Short and rapid brush strokes gave way to sustained and sensual strokes of passion as I translated her size into raspberry blooms. As her size intensified, I became aware of an unfortunate development. Mimoseni was bored. Malaise dimmed her eyes with a faint sense of urgency, like a sapling languishing in the shadows, aware that there was sunlight to be had. With her every sigh, her navel rose and fell, rose and fell in rhythm with an imperceptible breeze. Up the belly button went, and down again it came, frustrating my intentions to affix it to a two-dimensional plane. <laughs> my good friend Pablo would have simply painted it uh, from every angle, and would have thought himself quite clever in doing so. But I couldn't manage this for the obvious reason that lilacs look the same from all perspectives. In the sound of Mimosinus breathing, I could hear a distant echo from a simpler time. Or perhaps the echo was coming from down the hall. Salvador! Gala's voice ran out through the master bedroom. Why is there a naked girl in my bedroom? Ah, oh, this is an excellent question, my love. And the answer is that the bathtub was unavailable. <laughs> Gala must have been satisfied with this response because she did not press the issue further. She disrobed absent-mindedly and let the bath towel crumple to the floor. Suddenly, I was faced with two naked women in my room, which is twice the stress any man should ever have to deal with. <laughs> Hello, said Minosoni, raising her head from the pillow to address my wife. Her face 
crinkled into a cellophane awkwardness. It's a pleasure to meet you. But this was a lie, a terrible lie. It was obvious to everyone, or at least it should have been, that there was no pleasure in this gesture. This was not at all the kind of pleasure that the emotions had wanted. She abandoned her pose and closed her legs, throwing <coughs> the duvet around her shoulders. And it was there, between her thighs, that I ended my painting with a solitary stalk of sedge, the most tragic of all flowering plants, because it bears no petals. Salvador, said Carla, have you seen Jorge? Jorge, my paratex, without recognition? You know, she said, the handsome gardener? Ah, yes, I nodded. He is handsome. Well, said Carla, looking at our youngest with disapproval, I suppose I'll have to take Jorge into the upstairs bedroom. These words had the unfortunate effect of sobering up mimosemi faster than the blackest coffee could have. Something fluttered up from deep inside her and thrust itself against the blue panes of her eyes. She watched me, moth like, from behind those windows. Her spirit rushed to meet me, fleeting for an instant with acceleration. But it was the exhausted passion of a dying moth, a final gasp of recognition that the white world stretched before her and she could never escape herself to become a part of it. Her eyelids closed again, like curtains over 19 years of expectations. Mimosini had always known her first time would be painful, but this was not the kind of pain she expected. It was though she had lost more than she had budgeted for and gained nothing in return. An evening's worth of court frustration finally released itself in the form of a solitary tear. What's wrong with you? She whispered, choking back the impulse to begin sobbing. You were supposed to make love to me, and then you were supposed to paint my portrait. <coughs> and all you scribbled is a goddamn bouquet of flowers, and you, she growled at Gala. You are even worse than he is. You're crazy, both of you. As she ranted, a few stray drops of spit escaped from her mouth and dotted the canvas, putting the finishing touches on one of my liveliest paintings. Mimosani salt off to the bathroom, whether to relieve herself or dry her tears, no one will ever know. Poor girl, I said, shaking my head with the sincerest sympathy. If she thinks this is only a bouquet of flowers, I fear she's the one who's crazy. <laughs> teacher, bartender, historian, pop wash, furniture salesman, transcriber, cameraman, and for one day he was a lumberjack. Now he mostly writes stories and makes films. Laura's work includes audiobook narration for RAIB, 
and collaborations with Cabinets of Curiosity. She's performed her devised one-woman show for Hide and Seek Theatre, The Clock, at the Brighton Fringe, the Pleasant Sissington, and the Arts and Festival in Ghent. She is fluent in Spanish. Gloria! Decker Archive by Joel Blackledge. Passing under the red brick arches of Tide Marsh University, it is impossible to ignore the famous architecture that styles its buildings to resemble the subjects studied within the respective departments. The Institute of Zoology is a rabbit, the School of English is a stack of books, and the Film and Media Department is a camera. Its windows call to mind the frame of a reel. The fresher's eye eagerly devours every edge and corner of the place. Even the jaded doctoral student will admit to its ingenuity and undeniable charm. <coughs> Amidst this ostentatious fascination, though, one building hides away. Taking the path that follows the western wall of the sports sciences department, controversially a shuttlecock, the visitor will easily pass by the Schoendecker archive without paying it any notice at all. Its door is horizontal, flush with the lawn, opening onto steps that lead to the underground vault that houses the archive itself. The archive is, of course, Felix Schoendecker's life's work and one of the most astounding, if rarely visited, collections of its kind in the world. Schoendecker himself grew up in a tiny hamlet near the north coast of Germany, the only child of a police inspector and a schoolmistress. His childhood was, by his own description, quiet. Most of little Felix's young life was confined to the four walls of their crumbling cottage, his mother rendering the building in cross-stitch from every angle, his father arranging and rearranging their modest bookshelf. It wasn't until Schoendecker turned 18 and moved to London on a biology scholarship that he experienced his notorious revelation. The clatter of overhead train tracks, the clumsy flap of pigeon wings, the obnoxious roar of the daytime motor engine, the consoling hush of its nocturnal cousin, and everywhere, the clamorous voices of people who actually had to shout to be heard. The city was an education in sound that quite overwhelmed the provincial young student. It was then that Schoenbecker began collecting sounds. Perhaps envisioning an eponymous archive far into the future, or perhaps just enlivened by the blind energy of youth. The first experiment was a disaster. He had stood on the pavement to capture external ambience, and the recording was a fuzzy, inconclusive jumble. <coughs> so many sounds were crammed into the thin strip of cassette tape that none emerged with clarity. If one were to faithfully record the world, it seemed, it would first need to be itemised. He started 
in his small bedsit, holding a Tascam microphone close to each surface to capture its sound. Pencil on paper, pen on paper, eraser on paper, paper tearing, and then the comprehensive adjuncts, pencil on eraser, eraser on pen, pencil broken in half. Dawn was creeping through the thin curtain of his window before Schoendecker had exhausted the possible sounds from his desk alone. Compelled by a new vocation that he neither understood nor particularly enjoyed, Schoendecker would race home from his lectures to take up the Tascam once more, recording the vigilant flick of the light switch, the creak of a tired floorboard, the stubborn shuffle of Hessian on iron. He collected the sounds on cassette tapes, and had then to add these two to the collection. Rattling case, squeaking hinge, the various disparities of clatter when dropped from different heights and onto different surfaces. All of this was recorded, noted, and stored. His biology su studies suffered. Deadlines passed by him as he pursued his obsession. Stern warnings from his tutors were met with vague, mumbled excuses. He had stopped going to class altogether by the time he took the microphone outside. Initially, he limited himself to the small street that he lived on in Kensal Rise. It was not only space enough to contain an immense variety of sounds, but a shifting mosaic of parameters too. If he recorded the clunk of a loose paving stone baking under the midday sun, he would need the same sound on a rainy day. It wouldn't do to simply capture one washing machine cycle in the laundrette, it was necessary to get each unit's barreling tarantella full, half full, and empty. It was common for curious passers-by to inquire of him what he was doing. Did he work for the radio? Was he a scientist? Or was he just unemployed and insane? Schoendecker would turn on them with the microphone silently waiting for them to speak again, to be captured, to be catalogued. Most would walk away in fear. He was, after all, a fearsome image, bearded and gaunt, missing most meals as a better part of his stipend was spent on cassette tapes. The tapes had taken up almost all of the floor space in his room, save for a slim path from the door to the bed. Of course, each new tape had to be added to the collection the sound of its fall onto the incrementally increasing pile recorded, catalogued, and stored back into collection. As gossip spread of a rake-thin man listening to washing machines, Schoendecker was approached by the curator of a modern art gallery who offered him a grant to enable his work. Schoendecker rented a studio where after first capturing the aural possibilities of the empty space, he housed and properly indexed his tapes. His work was relentless, and so it was by sheer profile alone that he was appointed as a visiting lecturer at Tidemarsh. His classes were merely a public illustration of his continuing work. He would face his students, stretched across the length of his desk, tapping an oyster shell with each phalange of each knuckle all the while indexing the tapes in his meticulous records. Despite his increasing renown, Schoendecker was inwardly in turmoil. 
Each addition to the catalogue only revealed another lacuna. The crow of a cockerel at dawn, but not at noon. The zipper of a jacket worn by a stout man, but not a slim woman. His own wrinkling skin and graying hairs <coughs> spoke of an eventual deadline, and more importantly, of the entropy and decay that afflicts all objects in space. Their undocumented changes in pitch and timbre pecked away at his mind, day and night. Even a shoe, he reasoned, wears away in time, and so he was compelled to document the expiration of his own shoe in the footsteps it made on the ground. But he also knew that this project was impossible unless he could capture the shoes every step, not only a step on grass, concrete, carpet, wet tarmac, wood chips, and steel, but every instance of every footfall. Only thus could the life of an object be properly captured. And yet, for all that work, that was all he would achieve, the life of just one object. At length, he was persuaded to digitize the existing archive. Every sound in his tapes, from the remote rustle of brick dust in cottons, to the minute plops of water sprayed on oak, and the steady, sincere hum of an empty mall. It was all made available via the university's computers. Though the technicians insisted that the transfer machines made no sound, Schoendecker recorded the transfer process of every single tape in order to put those sounds into the archive as well. Silence is a sound became the ultimate Schoendeckerian maxim, making regular appearances in undergraduate dissertations and bathroom stalls alike. When he was swept into the higher offices of academia, Schoendecker's keynote speech was a rambling, though by all accounts, rousing piece that spoke of an entire city created in sound. Imagine, he said to the Pat Theatre, Every metropolitan sound extracted as individual, described, audited, catalogued, and made ready for inspection. Ambience in this cacophony that we call urban life is nothing but noise. What if we could break down the entire chaotic sum? and reassemble it, piece by piece, the model of cohesion. Schoendecker's dream was never realized in his lifetime. Amidst the deafening standing ovation that followed his speech, he returned to his seat, exhaled once, and died. In his hand was a tape recorder, its tiny patient whirring unheard by any of the auditorium's eager ears. Perhaps in the future, an enterprising student will find their way into the archive and assemble the world that he put there waiting to be built. Perhaps they will also piece together something of the man down there in those dark, silent corridors that lie beneath us all. Thank you, Gloria. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. The liars are taking over the National Gallery. Ooh.
as part of their late programme on the 22nd of July. There will be actors reading stories inspired by the works on the walls of the National Gallery and the gallery itself throughout the night. Do come, it's free. We'll be back at the Phoenix on the 9th of August for work and play. Submissions are closed, but they're still open for September's Gods and Mortals until the 7th of August. Details of this and the rest of the year's themes, along with videos and recordings from previous events, are all on the Liars website. And so, our final story of the evening will be The Island of Kevin Quickfingers by Alan Gray, be read by Tony Bell. Alan studied creative writing and economics at UES, and is still unsure which discipline relies on make-believe the most. He currently lives and works in London. Evening Standard Award nominee for A Man for All Seasons, Tony Bell has performed all over the world with award-winning all-male Shakespeare company, The Pearl, playing Bottom, Festo, Autonomous, and Train. TV includes Coronation Street, Orby City, Midsummer's Night, Midsummer's Murders, EastEnders, and The Bell. He's also a radio and voiceover artist. Tony! <laughs> The Island of Kevin Quickfingers by Alan Graham. Although the Caribbean Sea was calm, I still managed to spend most of my journey to the island sick on the floor of my cabin, all thanks to fear and nervous excitement. I still couldn't believe that someone like me, who never won anything, had triumphed in the most important competition I had ever entered. I'd lost friends since winning, obviously, other, more bitter members of the fan club couldn't accept that I was the one worthy enough to travel halfway around the world to conduct an interview with the great man himself, Kevin Quickfingers Smoothby, guitarist with the band Galadriel Overdrive. <laughs> Only the greatest, most mind-expanding, musically proficient progressive rock band to, <laughs> to record a track capturing the history of the steam engine via the medium of a 15-minute guitar solo. No one had been granted an audience with a great guitarist in years, not just in terms of getting the man to agree to it, but also when it came to actually physically getting to the island. Its legal status was disputed by all its neighbours, and obviously there was the ongoing war. But a true fan is a brave fan, and with the help of the competition organisers, I found a small boat of mercenaries willing to take me there. As we approached the island, I saw a couple standing on the beach to welcome me. Thanks to all the posters covering my bedroom wall, I recognised Kevin Smoothby immediately. Obviously, he looked a lot older and paunchier than he had in his 70s heyday, but it was definitely him. Next to him, holding his guitar-playing hand, a hand that had once been insured for $6 million, was the most beautiful woman in a red bikini I had ever seen in actual real life. <laughs> He saluted me as I leapt from the boat and splashed my way to meet them on the beach. Welcome, pilgrim, he grinned expensively at me. Ms. Red Bikini next to him just sighed and looked bored. On the boat, I'd rehearsed over and over in my mind what I would say when I finally met the man, how much of an inspiration he was, 
how the mid-70s albums released by Galadriel Overdrive were so challenging and out there they made Pink Floyd sound like One Direction. <laughs> I'd even prepared some nice things to say about his solo albums, which, I'll be honest, every fan knows deep down to be utter shite. <laughs> but when I tried to speak, I was so excited that all that came out was... Uh, uh, <laughs> the guitarist smiled reassuringly. It clearly dealt with fans like me dozens of times before. You must be shaping up by your journey here. Uh, uh, he paused awkwardly. Musred Bikini whispered my name loudly into his ear. Oh yes, uh, Michael. Of course it is. Well, I'm so glad you can join me here, Martin. You must have many questions to ask me on behalf of my millions of fans. As he spoke, I noticed that behind him, a discreet distance away, stood a small band of long-bearded, well-armed roadies. But before any interview, I have a treat for you. You're going to be the first non-islander to hear a couple of brand new songs I've written. I wanted to thank him for this incredible honour, but all that came out was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, darling. The guitarist commanded Miss Red Bikini without actually looking at her. Fetch my acoustic guitar and tell the guys they can stand down. Matthew here was security vetted after winning the competition, so there's nothing to fear. I know I should have listened as he explained what his new songs were about. Fandom would have wanted to know every word, but I couldn't take my eyes off Miss Red Bikini as she walked towards a particularly long bearded guitar tech who I assumed was in charge. After a brief, agitated conversation, the men slunk away. Then something happened that I did not expect. The moment the last of the security roaders left, Ms. Red Bikini picked up a guitar and walked towards Kevin. Before I could say anything, she raised the guitar and brought it crashing down on his head. <laughs> the guitarist collapsed unconscious to the floor. I was so surprised. I couldn't move for the three seconds it required for Ms. Red Bikini to knock me out, too. <laughs> okay, at this stage, I should probably take a step back and explain a bit more about the situation, just in case anyone hearing this is so musically illiterate they don't know the full story about Galadriel Overdrive and the greatest unfinished concept album of all time. It started in the late 70s, when they were the biggest band on the planet, They'd scored a big hit with their 1978 album Cthulhu Voodoo Priestess and then smashed records globally in 79 with the triply vinyl epic Bad Puss's Voyage into the Astral Subconscious. <laughs> Such critical and commercial success brings its own problems, however, and the band met up in 1980 facing the two biggest. Firstly, they needed a new mind-blowing concept for their next album that was more awesome than any that had come before. Secondly, they had a vast amount of money that needed hiding from the inland revenue. <laughs> and so it was that at this meeting, someone from the band had an amazing idea. Who it was remains disputed to this day, as each member claims it was they who proposed that the band buy themselves their own Caribbean island. Whoever it was, the rest of the band readily agreed, and their vast fortune was put to work locating and then purchasing their own tropical paradise. They relocated there with an extensive entourage of studio engineers, lawyers, groupies, wives, ex-wives, flunkies, junkies, drug dealers, crystal healers, and a performing elephant they'd won from Brian Ferry in a game of croquet. <laughs> Once they felt settled, 
they declared their new home a sovereign and independent republic, while simultaneously announcing a plan to record a quadruple concept album called The Island. This musical odyssey would explore the band's journey to build their own utopia, a new society inspired by the works of Thomas More, Plato, Alistair Crowley, Tolkien, and the taking of vast amounts of acid. It was not long, though, before things started to go wrong. Celebrities and bohemians travelled to the island in droves, only to find the band at war over the direction the island should take, both politically and musically. Rupert Gosmere, the bassist, sought to recreate a 50s English idyll, complete with pre-decimal currency and its own steam train network. <laughs> Meanwhile, Pep Savage, the drummer, built a treehouse village in the island's southern jungle with a small devoted cult of admirers. The final straw, though, was the rupture between the band's two founders and childhood friends, the great guitarist himself, Kevin Quickfinger Smoothby, and lead singer Diggory St. Nicholas. The latter was increasingly influenced by his gamine French girlfriend who revealed herself to be a committed Maoist, while Kevin Quickfingers had discovered the works of Ayn Rand. Within days, the two weren't talking. Within a week, they refused to share a studio. The antagonism spread to the other band members, and by the end of the year, they'd each retreat retreated to their own corner of the island. Statesman, statements were issued by all members of the band that it was the others that had destroyed the dream that once was Galadriel Overdrive. They then, in turn, each declared their own independent mini-republics and upcoming solo albums. <laughs> the situation never improved. In 89, the drummer disappeared into his jungle and has never been seen since. Those who had gone to find Pep Savage and his cult ventured into his corner of the island never to return, although sometimes their heads did. The disputes between the other three members grew until by 92 all parties were arming their hardcore fans and record company interns, sending them to fight unending skirmishes over the disputed borders of the mini-republics to establish exactly who it was who remained truest to the Galadriel Overdrive legacy. <laughs> when I woke up, I recognised immediately that I was in the region of the island Diggory St. Nicholas's quasi-Maoist personality cult. A heavily retouched image of the singer stared down at me from every wall. My head still throbbing, I became aware of a voice shouting in the room next door. You two idiots have to sort this out, the man was growling. Don't you realise albums just don't sell anymore? Kids today just stream all their stuff. This whole island, all these wars, you aren't earning enough to keep it going. There was a joke. When I realised who this was, Barry Turkington, the drive's infamous ex-manager, who'd resigned and fled the island the moment the first shots had been fired. Why do you think I hired that ex-Mossad agent to work undercover as Kevin's girlfriend? It was to bring you two together like this. You guys need to get back on the road. That's where the money is. Rupert's on board. He's going through his 11th divorce and had to sell his last base just to take on a lawyer. So we just need you to sign. What about Pep? I heard Kevin ask. Who gives a fuck about the drummer? He's just a drummer! <laughs> Throw a drumstick into the primate enclosure at London Zoo and chances are you'll hit something more than capable of doing his job. My heart sank when I heard this. How could the band reform without all the original members? Listen, Turkington continued. 
Retro tours are big bucks these days. I'm pretty sure I can get you on the bill with two ex-members of Kraftwerk and that bird out of Tapau. <laughs> I've pulled a few strings, and without promising anything, there might be a four-minute slot on Anton Deck Saturday Night Takeaway if you're willing to edit your songs down a bit. I didn't care how bad my head felt. This was wrong. New members, edited songs, it was all a complete betrayal of everything the band stood for. As I listened on, to my horror, it seemed that both the guitarist and singer, staring poverty in the face, were willing to betray their principles. Now, I arranged this fanboy wanker to come to the island, and you're going to give him that scoop that you guys are back together and back on the road. Once this hits the internet, the new improved Galadriel Maximum Overdrive will be what everyone is talking about. I'd heard enough. I wasn't going to be party to any of this. While they carried on trashing the legacy of the greatest progressive rock band in history, I slipped out of the building and disappeared into the night. It's still early days in our fight. It was tricky at first, but as news of the possible reunion eventually broke, I discovered that there were more and more of us on the island willing to fight for the band and preserve its true spirit, even though that has meant going to war with the actual band. <laughs> we don't have our own mini-republic with borders. We refuse to recognise any of that, but we have a dream, an ideal, a cause we are willing to die for. A few of us have even started composing our own anthem for the whole island to fight under. It's still unfinished, but it's currently 27 minutes long <laughs> and counting. <laughs> Tony. And that utter madness brings our evening to a close. If you're smart, you'll stick around for a while yet, trying to work out if this is all just a computer simulation. And if it is, why it's so much better than the real thing. But now, please, erupt into crazed applause for our brilliant actors and our quite possibly deranged authors. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> <laughs>